You're listening to WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. The Fired Up Show starts right now. And welcome, everybody. Welcome. It's Monday afternoon. That means it's time for Fired Up right here on WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. How's everybody doing? This is Steve. I host the show each week as we look at the mechanics and what makes our political system work or not work, as the case may be. So I hope everybody is all set for another successful week, and let's get right into the show, shall we? Uh, we'll start off, as we always do, with our recap of uh, where we stand with regard to the COVID pandemic here in this country. Uh, we currently are at 44.9 million cases have been reported. We've had 724,000 plus uh, people who have died from the disease, and we've had more than 405 million doses of vaccine administered. Uh, of those, 56, uh, 57% of the country is fully vaccinated, either two doses or one dose, depending upon your flavor of vaccine. And 66% have received at least one dose of the vaccine. So in addition, what we've been noticing in the st statistics I see being reported out of the CDC and other health organizations is that the infection rate is in fact going down uh, week over week uh, as as we progress. Hospitalizations are also down on average week over week. And of course, that corresponds to a reduction in the number of people who die from the disease each week. So that's all good and positive news. Uh, we need to keep that effort going through get, getting the vaccine and practicing the health and safety guidelines that the medical and scientific community have been telling us to do. So let's make sure we keep that as part of our ongoing call to action here. All right, uh, I've got an interesting show this week. Um, gonna start it off, I kinda wanna set a background so that you can understand uh, some things that I'm gonna talk about today. Uh, back at the early stages of this program uh, in late 2019-2020, I did a show where we talked about uh, magic. And, you know, the question could be raised, well, what would a discussion on magic have to do with politics? Well, the answer is really quite simple. Most successful magic tricks work on one basic principle, in that the magician or the person who is performing the trick has to create some sort of distraction or illusion to take your eyes away from what they're actually doing to manipulate the object uh, that they are performing the magic on. And if you want to see how this works, uh, you can uh, search in your uh, social media for the masked mag magician or uh, magic secrets revealed. Uh, and there are any number of videos, but one in particular has a character, he wears a black mask with uh, gold highlights and a black suit, and he debunks or explains how magic tricks are actually performed. Uh, if you are at all, like me, interested in magic, uh, it is well worth a watch. Now, I say all that to say because politics and magic have one thing in common. That is, in order for the politician or the political party in this case or, or any case, to accomplish a, an overall goal, 
they generally have to provide something that will distract the public from what they are doing uh, in in real time. And if you you know look at the the news feeds and and all of that as we go along, uh, you can start to see that. Uh, some of the news stories that are being hyped from the political pulpits around the world or around the country, rather, uh, actually fall into that category of magical distraction, where the major elements, um, you know, seem to go forward uh, and nobody, quote, seems to notice, close quote, uh, as to how we got to where we ended up. So, you know, just something to keep in mind. Uh, you know, you'll you'll hear phrases, you know, when you hear uh, the phrase, uh, you know, about tossing out a red meat to, you know, his or her base or, you know, playing up a, a theme that, you know, their base is in close alignment with. Uh, those are the distractions. You know, a lot of times the major uh, political uh, ideas or, or you know, legislation going on uh, is overshadowed by just this tremendous number of stories of a lesser nature that seem to garner the attention of the media and take our eyes off of what the big ticket items are. Uh, we've seen this a lot in recent weeks with uh, various news stories that have overshadowed um, the discussions on such things as the infrastructure bills, uh, as you know, the the pullout from Afghanistan, you know, any number of subjects that deserve intense public scrutiny by the general population, uh, we sometimes see a corresponding fog of you know lesser stories, not necessarily less important, but just in sheer volume. So many news items come out that the major ones seem to get lost uh, or, or become part of the background noise. So, you know, that, that is something that we need to make sure we're always listening with that third ear and always, you know, pulling out these, these uh, major stories and digging into them. We need to be listening as close as possible so that we can dig out the details and, you know, find the true facts uh, that lie at the center of the issues of the day. So, you know, just something to keep in mind. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about some stories that have come out over the past week that fall into that category. Uh, we'll start off uh, heading back to one of my favorite uh, states of discussion, and that would be Florida. Uh, this week, October 16th, a news article came out from the Daily Kos and, and several other sources that uh, brought a story about Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida, who's being sued for trying to deny uh, three black districts any representatives for a full year. And the story talks about uh, four voters in southern Florida who sued Governor, Governor DeSantis in Broward County Court, asking that the state compel DeSantis to schedule special elections in three legislative districts where legislators recently resigned. Uh, the state senator from District 33 and representatives from House Districts 94 and 88 stepped down this summer as required by Florida law 
to run in a special congressional election to replace the late Representative Alcee Hastings. Uh, all three of the districts in question have majority black populations. Um, so the, the crux of the story is that Florida's constitution requires the governor to schedule special elections when vacancies arise. And you know, according to the news article, while DeSantis has been expeditious in declaring election dates in the past, even acting sometimes on the same day as a representative's resignation, the governor has made the residents of these three districts wait for an unprecedented length of time. So, you know, according to, um, you know, sources left to his own devices, the governor would deprive the residents of Senate District 33, House District 88, and House District 94 of their constitutionally protected voice in the Capitol. And the lawsuit is alleging that. The governor has failed to perform his statutorily prescribed ministerial duty to fix the dates of special elections for those three districts where uh, the petitioners in the suit reside. The vacancies in those districts arose over 75 days ago. No other governor in living memory has waited even half this long to schedule a special election, according to the article from Daily Cause. Um, and it cites that over the past 20 years, the average wait time has been just under a week. Uh, you know, the article goes on to say that he waited 30 days, that is Governor DeSantis, to set a date for the special election to replace Hastings in Congress, resulting in a similar lawsuit. The primary in that race is scheduled for November with a general election in January. DeSantis's delay will ultimately result in locals not having had a voice in Congress for more than eight months, and because it's a safe blue seat, it will also have robbed Democrats of a crucial seat in the closely divided U.S. House as they fought to enact most of their domestic agenda. So, you know, it, it, it lays this in the context that Florida's traditional legislative session stretches from January through March. So if a court doesn't compel DeSantis to call a special election soon, the residents of those districts will likely go without representation for the entirety of the next year, given Florida GOP's passage of a major voter suppression bill this year, none of this seems accidental. So, you know, here it's clear, and and also keep in mind that this has an impact on the redistricting effort, along with several other key, um, you know, federal and state initiatives that require the vote of the the federal and state legislators um, and you begin to see how you know this is something that is very important that has gone largely by the wayside in terms of public attention outside of the uh, affected areas of Florida uh, and it you know goes to back to what I was saying you know it's it's the distraction of other things you know, DeSantis has been in the news quite a bit for his stand on mask mandates and vaccine mandates and, you know, kids going to school and not being required to wear a mask and so forth, all of which, let me be clear, are very important issues. However, this issue is much more widespread and, and the impact of it will be much more severely felt that because it involves the process of setting 
legal uh, legislation and getting bills passed and signed and the votes that are required to make that happen. So, you know, something to keep an eye on, something to, for, for those of you that live in the state of Florida, make sure that you are, you know, in communication with your state reps, your, you know, federal representatives and the governor's office and, you know, make it clear that you need these elections to be scheduled and completed as soon as possible so that these districts don't go unrepresented unrepresented, excuse me, for, you know, the next year. So as I said, this gives you an idea of, you know, what I mean when I say, you know, we have to weed through the distractions to get to the the super important issues of the day that need our attention. Uh, while we spend time on, and again, it's an important question, don't get me wrong, it is an important question with regard to mask mandates and vaccines and, you know, getting our kids back in school safely. Uh, that is very important, but it is not the only thing that we need to be focused on. We need to make sure that we are paying attention to the widest possible arc of uh, news and political information that's coming out there so that we can be sure to respond accordingly. And, you know, the, the, the example set by the state of Florida is just one. Um, over in my other favorite state of Texas, you know, there is a, a huge battle going on over, you know, not only the, the governor's race, um, but also things like the Texas infrastructure uh, and the national infrastructure and its impacts in Texas. As you may recall, uh, last winter, we had a huge, huge situation where the electric grid in several major areas of Texas actually crashed in the midst of the extreme cold that we faced during last winter's uh, peak. And, you know, here we are entering into fall with winter coming back around the corner. And you know, we don't necessarily have information that the necessary strengthening of the infrastructure in Texas has been uh, undertaken, let alone accomplished, uh, so that we could possibly face another situation where, you know, areas, particularly urban areas where high, with high population densities, that also coincidentally happen to be the areas with the highest uh, representations of people of color, uh, aren't going to suffer again with weather-related power outages uh, because the infrastructure in Texas is inadequate to the task. And, you know, it, it shouldn't be lost on anyone that this points to an even greater concern in terms of getting the federal infrastructure legislation passed. So let, let's turn our attention to that for a few minutes. And uh, let me give you some thoughts uh, from, from the mic here on, you know, what this all means in terms of, you know, what's going to happen with our national infrastructure if we continue to see the same level of activity coming out of Washington, D.C. that we've been seeing. And again, you know, here is the case where it's not a Republican problem or, you know, the blame isn't to be pointed just at Republicans. 
The blame is also very much a Democratic problem because Democrats are in control of all three phases of the federal uh, legislative bodies. And, you know, the the arguments that are circulating around uh, are are doing nothing but delaying any vote uh, on getting these bills passed right now. The the infrastructure bill, the one point two trillion dollar infrastructure bill has passed the House, but sits waiting in the Senate for the Senate to take a vote on it and move the bill onto the president's desk for signature. Now, the progressive caucus in the Senate is part of the problem with holding up this bill because they want to see the uh, larger uh, social infrastructure bill uh, passed as well so that both bills can be sent to the president's desk as a package to be signed. Uh, I think this is a, a critical flaw. I think it is indicative of the problem that the Democratic leadership faces in that they are squandering the advantages they have in being in control of the House and Senate, uh, you know, just as they did back in 2008 and 9 and 10 in the Obama administration when they controlled, you know, both houses in the the federal legislature uh, and yet couldn't get uh, things done. what the the Democrats in the Senate need to do is they need to pass the bill they have in hand and then look at the the social infrastructure bill, the three point two trillion dollar bill, and go at it and pick out the things that are priorities that need to get done. Uh, the, the bill should really be split up so that things that are contentious right now, Fine, take those out of the existing bill and come back at them, you know, later on, you know, until into, you know, after after the first of January or whatever. Um, You know, one of the things that is a a truth in politics is that nothing helps get an agenda through like positive public opinion on what you have already accomplished. So, you know, while the 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 polls are showing that you know support is is lagging uh, is falling uh, for the Biden administration. If these bill if the bill was passed and you know action was started and people began to see that you know this bill is actually beginning to do some economic and some infrastructure good and and so forth, uh, there would be a lot more pressure to continue that by getting a version of the social infrastructure bill passed. Uh, I think allowing the progressive caucus and, you know, whoever else, you know, the the two senators who seem to have some issue with uh, the larger bill, uh, allowing that to delay the the passage of any bill is a, a, a critical error, which and it's surprising. It surprises me that uh, President Biden, who was President Obama's vice president during the battles they had with Congress, you know, during the Obama term, uh, has allowed this scenario 
to uh, begin to surface again. Uh, really, to the Democrats out there, we need to let our legislators know that, you know, stop trying to get both bills through. Get through what you have right now and get it going. If you are successful in moving this package forward and jobs are being created in working on the physical infrastructure in this country, you are much more likely to have the the popular backing to get the larger bill in some form uh, through the House and Senate. Now, having you know everything, and, I, and I've said this before on the show, having an everything bill where you've thrown all of it into the pot uh, and and you have this jambalaya of a bill, uh, you know, may seem good uh, from the standpoint of wanting to get big things done. But if you let that keep you from getting anything done, then, you know, that that is a a huge uh, mistake and a huge loss of momentum and energy uh, that is 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 unacceptable. And, you know, trust and believe that the Republican side is doing everything they can to once again throw up those illusions, those distractions. Um, you know, by saying you know things like uh, they're not going to help the Democrats. They want the Democrats to do it on their own. They have the majority. Let them do it on their own. Okay, fine. Do it on your own. It doesn't matter at the end of the day for the American people. It doesn't really matter if the bill was Democrats only uh, or bipartisan. At the end of the day, the beneficiaries are going to be the American people by getting, you know, rebuilt bridges, new infrastructure, new highways, new roads and streets, uh, improvements to the rail system, high-speed Internet reaching out to all corners of the country. All of these things are critically important to the growth of our economy, to the growth of our position in the world, to our competitiveness, and all of it. And by allowing these illusions and distractions to, to freeze your feet in place and not move forward what you can move forward just shows a, a lack of leadership on the Democrats' part that is inexcusable. Now, lest you think that the Republicans are going to come through, through this unscathed, uh, let me remind you of how the Republicans... Uh, opposed mightily the Affordable Care Act uh, in the in the Obama years, uh, and 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 tried voting more than a dozen times to repeal it every time it failed. And what it has ended up being is a a successful health care program, not perfect but successful, uh, that both Democrat voters and Republican voters um, have liked, have embraced, and have taken advantage of. And by that simple fact, the Republicans have not been able to muster the energy to, to repeal it, even though the Trump administration expended a great deal of energy and political capital to try that and were unable to simply because their there wasn't a viable alternative. There wasn't anything in the works that would replace it. The proposals, 
if they gave proposals, they fell woefully short. And, you know, they really, the American people saw clearly that this was the, the, the methodology for health care that we have. It works and it does what it needs to do. And, you know, again, it doesn't do it perfectly, but it does it and gets it done for a, a huge number of Americans, both Democrat and Republican. So, you know, why we are not taking a lesson and why Republicans don't see how much their opposition to the Affordable Care Act cost them in terms of uh, politics, um, you know, it, it can be said that it cost them the House, the Senate, and the presidency uh, through their, you know, inactions on uh, other bills as well as health care through the handling of the pandemic and so forth. So there are lessons there for both sides, and both sides need to um, focus in on what's important, revamp uh, the larger infrastructure bill as need be, you know, pull out the things that need more work and pass the things that there are agreements on and get it moving so that the American people can receive the benefit. So that that's the first the first uh, argument to be made. We'll take our break here. You're listening to Fire It Up right here on WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. This is Steve. We'll be right back after the break. I'm on 
And we're back. We're back to Fire It Up right here on WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. At the end of the last segment, uh, we were talking about some things that would be uh, impactful on the uh, infrastructure plans that the Biden administration has proposed and that are making their way through the House and Senate. Um, One of the things that uh, the Democrats, frankly, have not been doing well is explaining to the American people what exactly these packages contain and what exactly they would do. And that lack of, of information, that lack of explanation, is going a long way towards fueling the resistance that the Democrats are seeing with their proposed plan. Uh, it's clear that you know President Biden and you know Vice President Harris and the other members of the Democratic leadership and your local uh, senators and representatives need to be talking in a much broader and informative sense about what it is exactly that this bill will accomplish so that the American people can understand what it is that's trying to get done. And if they are in favor of it, they can, you know, exert the necessary influence over their elected officials to move it forward. Conversely, if they are opposed to it or parts of it, they can convey that sentiment as well so that the legislatures can have a better sense of maybe what they need to pull out of the bill in order to make it more palatable to the American people. So I've been, you know, scouring as I do, you know, I read and study a wide collection of news sources. Uh, I have a couple of apps that help me that um, monitor both the right wing as well as the left wing, you know, the progressive sources and so forth. And I go through these and identify the stories that I think I want to bring to the show each week. Well, one of those stories that uh, bubbled up to the surface uh, for this week was a report and it, it came out from several sources, but I'm, I'm citing the article from The Hill that came out uh, on the 16th. And it says, Democrats facing growing storm over IRS reporting provisions. And what this, this story is about is a proposal that is within the social infrastructure segment of the, the bills. And it would basically empower the IRS to greatly expand its monitoring of uh, bank accounts in this country. Let me give you uh, some highlights out of the article. Uh, Democrats are facing a firestorm of criticism over a proposal to increase the amount of bank account information reported to the IRS, posing a challenge as they craft their wide-ranging social spending bill. The proposal is a top priority of the Biden administration, which argues it will help the IRS go after wealthy tax cheats. Stick a pin in that phrase, wealthy. We'll come back to it. But it has come under a barrage of attacks from banks and Republicans who say it raises significant privacy concerns. Financial institutions have been mobilizing their customers to speak out against the proposal to lawmakers. The president's budget request proposed imposing a reporting requirement for accounts with flows of at least $600. Congressional Democrats 
have discussed raising that threshold to $10,000 and exempting payments from payroll processors. The proposal could be a way to raise revenue that could be used to offset the cost of spending in the Democrats' social safety net package in areas such as child care, education, and climate. Treasury Department estimates uh, that the administration's proposal would raise about $460 billion over 10 years and said that a narrower proposal could raise 200 to $250 billion over that same 10-year time period. So what, it, what exactly does that mean? Let's step out of it for a second. I remember I asked you to, to put a pin in that term, wealthy. So let me, let me put some numbers uh, behind it uh, as an information source. And we'll, we'll start here. If you are an individual in this country and you make $15 an hour uh, and you work a full-time job, you will uh, make an annual gross of about $31,000 a year. You know, 31 plus or minus. Um, and if you have expenditures for rent and food and utilities and car payment and the other really hard necessities uh, that you need to, to live, uh, you're going to way exceed $600 a month in outflow from your bank account every month, just as at uh, $15,000, I'm sorry, $15 an hour, your monthly gross income would be just under $3,000 a month. So it, now you, you, can, you can see that the net that this proposal uh, would fall over is just about everybody in this country from you know the people who work in the service industries you know who are making minimum wage you know $15 an hour is the minimum wage in many areas of the country and by no means would they be considered you know any way wealthy um, so you know as I said this legislation this proposal would uh, basically allow the IRS to monitor the bank records of just about every working adult in the country uh, and you know gather you know all that information now the goal of the legislation the goal of the proposal is to uh, tighten down the IRS net on uh, those who are cheating on their taxes and in particular the top 1% of the income brackets where you know tax cheats um, you know are are much more prevalent so you know the the nature of it the the nuts and bolts of it uh, is to say for example if somebody reports an income of uh, let's say ten thousand dollars and they had three million dollars of expenses go out of their checking account that tells the IRS that uh, that that's an individual that they should probably do an audit um, the administration has said, according to the article, that it plans to focus its enforcement efforts on high-income taxpayers and that audit rates wouldn't increase for taxpayers with an annual income of under $400,000. Uh, but the counter-argument that's being put forward by you know, banking groups and Republicans 
is that the proposal would lead to the IRS receiving additional fi filing information and financial information about a very large swath of taxpayers. They've expressed concerns about the IRS's ability to keep the information secure, pointing to past instances where the agency has been hacked and where there were unauthorized disclosures of tax information. So, you know, it, it's one thing and it's, it's you know, laudable and, and worthwhile to have an a effective um, enforcement division that's going after the, the high-income people who are hiding income and so forth. But the, the problem is that, you know, that the net they cast to do that under this proposal is going to catch, capture millions of bank accounts for individuals for which the rule, frankly, doesn't apply. Um, you know, and the Republicans have been very vocal about this. Um, Republicans who have a long history of disliking the IRS have also been frequently criticizing the IRS bank reporting proposal in congressional hearings, speeches, and op-eds. Uh, according to the article, GOP lawmakers on the Tax Writing House Ways and Means Committee this week introduced a bill to bar the Treasury Department from implementing a proposal along the lines of the administration's plan. Uh, we should not, and this is a quote from Representative Drew Ferguson, uh, Republican of Georgia, who sits on the committee uh, and is a lead sponsor of the bill, uh, we should not allow the IRS to invade the privacy of Americans by snooping into their bank accounts. Um, he, the Biden administration and congressional Democrats have clearly demonstrated their intent to institute a broad financial surveillance regime using Americans' private financial information. Now, let's step out of the article for here and maybe add in something in the background that they're not talking about. What the Republicans are doing here is by championing the, the stopping of this proposal for, quote, all uh, American tax and financial information. They are also uh, potentially stopping the IRS looking into the top 1%. Uh, so the, the opposite side of that coin of catching everyone who you know has a, an inflow outflow of 600 bucks a month by blocking that, they're also blocking that you know person who has an income of ten thousand dollars but has an expenditure of three million dollars. Uh, so, you know, again, you know, the devil's in the details. And when you hear or read, you know, a a politician discussing a a piece of legislation, you have to listen to it with that third ear. You have to read it with that third eye. And you have to look for what's not being said as well as what is being said. So, you know, uh, again, the, the details still need to come out. But uh, the way this reads and the way the comments, uh, particularly from this member of the House Ways and Means Committee, are saying is that they want to, they want to kill this proposal because it would invade the financial privacy of, you know, the, quote, poorer American uh, families, close quote, uh, as an added 
benefit that's not being mentioned, they are not saying that it, it would be, you know, still going after and enforcing those on the top 1% who, you know, historically uh, have been the ones who, you know, find the, the most lucrative loopholes. Um, remember, there have been news articles that have been coming out over the past few years talking about various corporations and various individuals who end up paying, you know, no tax or a very small amount of tax. And this goes all the way up the chain to the former president of the United States who, you know, as his, as information from some of his tax returns came out, uh, indicated that he paid as little as $750 in uh, tax. And he is a billionaire of some level or another, depending upon your sources. Um, so, you know, the, the question that we the people need to be asking back is, so if you're going to to limit this to the top 1%, who exactly, you know, what group of people exactly uh, is that going to target? Um, you know, and, and frankly, you know, setting a $400,000 threshold is still going to lead to a very wide net and millions of uh, taxpayer information records that are going to be channeled uh, to the IRS uh, for review, and um, you know there, there's there's problems there. Uh, so as I said, the devil is in the details, and more details need to come out. Um, you know, and another quote in the article came from a uh, gentleman by the name of Seth Hanlon who's a senior fellow at the left-leaning Center for American Progress and said there is strong support and a strong understanding of how important it is among key congressional Democrats. And the it he's referring to is the, the process of identifying those people who are hiding large amounts of money from, uh, from their taxes uh, and, you know, basically... Uh, taking advantage of or exploiting uh, legitimate loopholes that reduce their contributions to the tax rolls. Um, you know, he, he also added that lawmakers and the administration have more work to do countering the false claims about the proposal. Again, devil in the details. But um, those who have been critical of the proposed bank reporting requirements are predicting that a proposal resembling the administration's plan will not be included in the spending bill. Um, so, you know, according to uh, another source, Steve Rosenthal, a senior fellow at the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center, whose former director now works in the Biden administration, said the proposal is too expansive and thinks bank lobbyists have touched a raw nerve with their customers who are concerned about privacy. Uh, the quote is, at the end of the day, I think this bank proposal will fail. So, you know, there you have a, a, a segment out of the uh, soft infrastructure bill uh, that, you know, is being, you know, explained. As, as I mentioned in the first segment, um, the Democrats have not done the best job in getting their message out uh, to 
the, the rank and file American people about what this bill contains, what it will do, and who it is going to impact. And this article, I think, illustrates you know, one point of that uh, and you know, gives us reason, as I've said, to you know, dig into the bill, to, to, to read the summaries of the bill, because it, obviously it's, it's hundreds, if not thousands of pages long, and you know, identify what this bill is going to do so that you can make an informed decision about your role in you know, supporting or um, opposing this bill with your elected officials. So, you know, as always, the call to action is get informed, get educated, dig wider, dig deeper, find out the facts, listen to a broader segment of news sources. You know, as I said at the top of, uh, of this segment, I listen to uh, or, or review or read um, or watch news from you know, uh, many dozens of news sources. Uh, granted, that's a small percentage of the thousands of them that are out there. But, um, you know, a, a lot of it, the news percolates up and gets carried. And I try and find those stories that I think are of most interest to my listeners. And by the way, as a side note, if there's a particular story or um, topic that you'd like to hear discussed here on Fired Up, please send an email to the show at firedupradio at yahoo.com. I love to get emails from the listeners. Uh, love to have the chance to have debates and discussions here in the forum. Uh, so let me know what you think at firedupradio at yahoo.com. All right, we'll, uh, we'll go through the last segment here. And uh, just by way of information, in case you hadn't noticed, uh, we're about a year and two weeks out from the midterm elections. That means that we are in political mode. And, you know, one of the things that pops up uh, like crabgrass in your front yard during political season are political polls. Um, I went back into the archives and found that uh, just about a year and a few weeks before the national election in uh, late 2019, uh, we discussed you know, what a poll was. Um, if you would like to hear that segment again, you can go to our archive source. Uh, you can get to that through the WJMSradio.com website uh, and go to show number five. Uh, that's the show where I had the lengthy discussion on uh, polls. Uh, but to reprise it here, uh, a poll is really a snapshot of the opinion of a selected group of individuals at any given moment in time. Uh, frequently you'll hear uh, polls referred to as national polls. Uh, it doesn't mean that, you know, 230 to 330 million people were asked the question. Typically how a poll operates in, in a nutshell is a polling organization will create a template for who they want to talk to and that's normally based on out on outcomes from the census reports and they will uh, gather up a number of people in various demographic groups 
um, you know, age, area of the country, uh, race or ethnicity, gender, uh, you know, voting, uh, party affiliation, and so on and so forth. And they'll go out and survey that group of people. Uh, so, you know, we are going to start seeing, if we haven't already started to see, uh, more and more polls come out as the candidates uh, for the midterms, uh, both at the federal, the state, and the local level, uh, swing into high gear as we go into the uh, October, November, December uh, portion of this year and then through next year. So uh, just wanted, again, to give you kind of a, an overview of what polls are and you know, what uh, you should take away from them. Now, realize again that typically uh, when there is a national poll on an issue, uh, the, the polling agency will give you or should give you the number of respondents that they had and something called the margin of error. So, you know, in a national poll, what you would like to see is numbers of respondents, you know, well in excess of a thousand or more. Uh, that gives the, the pollsters a, a more complete uh, weighted sample to judge from and they will determine what the margin of error is for the poll based on you know formulas and algorithms that they use uh, so you might see something like you know this poll had a margin of error of 3.1 percent or it had a margin of error of four percent what that means is that when you look at the actual result of the poll Let's say you're looking at a field where uh, the polling results were 30% uh, in favor and 28% opposed with a margin of error of 4%. That means that the in favor of could be a number anywhere from uh, 26 to 34%, and the opposed could be anywhere from 24% to 32%. So it, the, the poll numbers you see are not a pinpoint of the exact number of people that voted one way or the other on an issue. Always take a look at the margin of error. And you know if there is a larger margin of error, uh, that should uh, you know, be one of the things that you treat as a grain of salt to uh, when you look at the poll, to look at it with that third, that third critical eye we always talk about. The other thing is, as I mentioned, uh, the size of the sample that they took. Uh, for a national poll, uh, again, you really want to see um, a, a minimum of you know a thousand to fifteen hundred uh, surveys would be probably the minimum level uh, that you would want to look for. If there's less than that, if there's you know less than a thousand respondents in a national poll, uh, that survey size isn't really big enough, and you really want to you know take that poll with a grain of salt, and maybe go look and see if there are some other similar polls uh, that have numbers as well, so that you can compare them. Uh, in any event, you know polls are uh, you know just again a, a statistical analysis of the responses to a set of questions um, you know and the the questions that are asked can oftentimes influence what the response rate is 
And it, it's not just the wording of the individual questions, it's the order the questions are asked. It's the context, you know, from one question to the next uh, as, as they, they flow through the poll that can oftentimes, you know, skew the results. So treat polls with a critical eye or critical ear and realize that uh, they are really just a, a statistical analysis of the results. And just, you know, anecdotally, I'll close out by saying there's an old expression um, that I've traced back to uh, Arthur James Balfour, first Earl of Balfour in England. And this was quoted in the Manchester Guardian on the 29th of June in 1892. And the quote goes like this. You've probably heard it. There are three kinds of falsehoods, lies, damned lies, and statistics. So when you're you know, wading through the polls that are going to come raining down on us over the next 12 months. Just keep that in mind that, you know, it could be one of those three categories. It could be a lie, it could be a damn lie, or it could just be statistics. So, you know, exercise your thinking, dig wider, dig deeper, do your own research and homework, and, you know, find the truth to help you make that informed and educated decision as you go forward. Well, that's going to wrap up the show for this week. As always, I am so grateful for all of you that listen. Thank you. And I look forward to uh, coming to you again. Please stay safe in the meantime. If you have the opportunity, get vaccinated. It's your best protection against the pandemic uh, and practice the safety and health guidelines that we get from the medical and scientific community. This is Steve. You've been listening to Fired Up right here on WJMSRadio.com. Please send emails to firedupradio at yahoo.com with any thoughts or comments you have on the show. And I will look forward to speaking to you all again in seven days. message wherever you stand I'm calling every woman calling every man we're the generation we can't afford to wait the future started yesterday and we're already late